Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 22. We're going to finish up the chapter, the last time we spoke about really the problem with religion based on the first several verses that Jesus uh, speaks about in this chapter, what he's teaching on. And today we're going to speak of the sin of disbelief. I could have also named this message, it's all about the Holy Spirit, because we'll see that the Holy Spirit really has a main focus here. But the sin of disbelief. Now there's a difference between unbelief and disbelief. If you look at the prefixes in the dictionary, un could just mean someone who didn't grow up in a Christian home, who really doesn't know the things of the Lord, and they don't know. Someone has to show them the way. Uh, But disbelief is different. Disbelief, there's a willfulness attached to that. And we're going to speak, we're going to read some scripture. Jesus is going to give us some insight into the demonic world. A little scary, a little creepy at times. Uh, They're there, they're out there. But, you know, we have the Lord, so we're protected. Um, I do want to encourage you, at the end, Jesus basically gives an invitation and says, anyone who just does the will of, of my Father is in my family. So I kind of want to give you the encouraging part at the end, because some of this stuff is going to be a little, you know, a little rough to get through, because it's very, um, it's some of the harder parts of Scripture. Uh, maybe, too, it'll help to encourage us to uh, pray more, more fervently for those that we love, or, you know, just our missionaries in general reaching out to the lost world, just constantly being prayer for the lost. Once we read this, it'll open our eyes and hopefully will give us that uh, conviction and that diligence to continue to pray for the lost world. Verse 22. Then one was brought to him, Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he, Jesus, healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? So verse 22, we see that, and we've seen this before, uh, back in those days, and certainly today, without a doubt. Uh, There is demonic possession, there's demonic affliction. Uh, Today in our society where we scoff at that because we're so educated, probably Satan thinks that that's great because it really doesn't expose him for what he is. So he can work in society and uh, the enlightened society that we are, the postmodernists, can look at that and say, oh, that's not, there must be something wrong, maybe it's a disease, maybe we give him some medication, maybe, you know, all these, maybe we can incarcerate him, but demon possession is kind of out of the question. But here, again, it happened. Jesus also gave his disciples and his followers the power to cast out demons. So we do have that power. When we bring Jesus into the party, those who are demonic don't want to stick around. They want to leave because they don't want to be around him. But in a spiritual sense, Satan wants us to be. It's not surprising. Number one, blind to the truth of the spiritual realm, ignorant of these things. Two, to be mute unable to testify of God's wisdom and the truth of salvation. Again, we have many educated, and listen, I got a four-year degree from a good school, so you know, it's, it's nothing, I'm not opposed to education, but we have a lot of enlightened and educated men and women running the world. But we see that the world is in chaos, right? We, we have these ideas, even in North Africa, well, let's, let's remove these guys, you know, Iraq or whatever, and hopefully the next person in doesn't give us a problem. But that's not always the case. We saw that in Iran, didn't we, after the Shah left? It went from bad to worse. So, you know, smart people run in the world, but the world is in chaos. Right? You look at even the situation in Japan. How can you prepare for that? Um, maybe they'll change the way they develop uh, nuclear reactors and where they put them. But the bottom line is men have been trying for thousands of years to solve man's problems, and it's just not working. See, it's only when we're born again 
of the Holy Spirit can we, number one, see things for what they are. We understand the natural world that we live in, but we also understand the spiritual world. And with a spiritual insight, we understand the natural world that much better. And then when our uh, unsaved friends and loved ones ask us questions about current events, we have some information because we know what the scripture says. And they're, they're like, wow, how did you know that? It's all in God's word. The second thing is that when we're born again, we can utter God's wisdom, again, which comes from the Holy Spirit. So these multitudes left off saying, could this be the son of David, which is a messianic reference? Enter the opposition, verse 24. But when the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, the uh, entrenched religious community of the day, heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Pretty insulting. Uh, We see the opposition, uh, which is always present when God God is at work. Now, they couldn't dispute the healing. This guy goes, he's in the local area, the village. You know, if you lived in those days and it was a small community, everybody knew each other and each other's problems. Hey, we know, you know, Bill from the synagogue, and we know he couldn't speak and we, he couldn't see. He had to be led around. That looks like Bill, but his eyes are open and, he's, and, he, and he can speak, and you can't deny the miracle. So the second strategy is to attack the source of that miracle. And even today, don't be surprised when there's a work of the Holy Spirit the opposition will mount. You know, sometimes we wonder, gee, I'm serving in ministry and I'm doing everything I I think the Lord would want, and these attacks are coming at me. It shouldn't be a surprise. Because if you're dead inside and you're part of a dead church, you know, Satan doesn't have a need to mess with you. He's going to put his best men in other places. So that's what we have. Verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or else, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So Jesus knows their wicked thoughts. He knows basically what they were whispering, and certainly in furtherance, what's in the brain there that's not coming out of the mouth, he knows their thoughts, and he responds. Now, Beelzebub. We could say Beelzebub. We could speak about Baal. We could speak about Dagon. It doesn't matter. Every culture had their chief deity, which, of course, represented Satan, who is the head of all deities, false gods, that is not God. So you're either worshiping God or you're worshiping the demonic realm, period. And he says this, number one, every kingdom divided itself against itself cannot stand. Well, this makes sense in our world, doesn't it? And it certainly makes sense in the spiritual realm. As a matter of fact, God cast out a third of the angels that were making trouble for him. So even in his kingdom, he had to have purity where he was. But the question begs, and Jesus brings this to light, why would Satan, who's a master strategist, cast himself out? Doesn't make any sense. And he says, wait a minute, your sons or your disciples or your followers, don't they also cast out demons? And how do they do it? Do they do it by Satan? 
So he was trying to get them to really think about the claims that we were making or he was making. And in Luke 11, he says, not only that the kingdom of God has come upon you, but that if you're wrong, then these demonic beings are cast out, Luke 11, by the finger of God. I love that. To deal with demons for us, pretty frightening. But for God, all he needs is his little finger, you know, to just kind of get rid of them. That's how powerful he is. And, and if they were blaspheming against this work of God, uh, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, then inadvertently or, or uh, willingly or wittingly, they were blaspheming God himself. And be careful of that. Now, the second example he speaks about is a strong man, somebody who's strong and has his goods, and he's got a guardianship over his goods. You know, back then they didn't have alarm systems and all kinds of fancy security and surveillance cam- cameras. If you had goods, you either had to be able to ward off somebody, uh, an, an enemy, or you had to have others that could guard you and guard your goods. So Satan here is pictured as the strong man. And his goods really are the stranglehold that he has over the world that we live in and the people that inhabit it. Now, Christ was the only one who could come and actually bind the strong man. Look what he did at the cross. He paved the way for salvation. So right, right at the cross, I mean, really starting with these miracles, casting out demons, then at the cross, uh, freeing people from the stranglehold that, that Satan and sin had over their lives. And, you know, some don't realize that they don't have to be under the strong man's power anymore. See, I kind of think of, uh, you ever see those, like a, well, actually, you don't see them because they're invisible. The electric fences and the dogs have the little collars. And, uh, you know, you, you put a collar on a dog. I don't have one. I don't have a dog. I only have cats, and they don't want to leave anyway. <laughs> They've got it too good. But <laughs> to keep the dog from running off your property, you set up this invisible fence, and you have the collar. And the dog, he doesn't see it, but every time he goes to go off the curb, he gets zapped. So after a few weeks or a few months of this training, the dog is not going to leave the curb, even if there's something so much better on the other side. Now, take this for a year or so and take his collar off, take the visible fence down. The dog is still not going to cross the street because he's been trained. He's been, you know, conditioned, that's the word, to not cross that street. Now, this is amazing because there are many today that act like those dogs with the dog collars. See, Satan has already come and defeated Satan at the cross. And there, there are many that are still struggling in their sin and trying and, and, you know, floundering. But they don't realize they can just walk across the street to better pastures. You see, Jesus has already bound the strong man. So his goods and the dominion that he has over people has been broken. And sometimes it, it takes a while to make others understand that. Verse 30. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So basically, any other way other than Christ will come to dissipation. Now, there are many who come up with these great worldly methods to get off of drugs, to fix relationships, to control fear, to control anger. Anger management now is a big thing. We've got to go to anger management classes. And they may work for a little while. They may naturally condition you. But without Christ, it comes to dissipation. How many keep going to these programs? Without the Lord, forget about it. It isn't going to work. Right? 
We're either part of one kingdom or the other. There's no neutral ground. It's either part of the Lord's kingdom or the part of the world. There's no Middle Earth. This isn't Lord of the Rings. There's only two choices in life, okay? You've got to make your decision. Verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. I believe that Jesus is lovingly giving fair warning. And I've talked to other pastors about the topic of hell, and no pastor that I know enjoys it. The only reason we speak about it is because we don't want anybody to go there. And that's a lot of the reason why Jesus spoke about it so much. Unfortunately, every once in a while, some joker comes up with a book about how hell doesn't exist or the, against the doctrine of hell, and we have to, from the pulpit, you know, inoculate you from that false doctrine because it is a real place, all right? And it's something that, uh, you know, we want to give fair warning for. Any pastor who enjoys and glees and gloats over the doctrine of hell probably shouldn't be a pastor. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin? Now, I will tell you, maybe it's just me, but as a new believer, I read this and I got scared. I'm like, well, what if I did this inadvertently? (laughs) What if I'm really not saved? Okay, tell me that somebody else did that besides me, please. Thank you. (laughs) You know, you read stuff in the scripture, and without the Holy Spirit, without uh, a little bit of maturity in the word, you know, you stumble over these passages. So that's why I have to be really careful with this. This is a willfulness. Now, if I take the totality of scripture bring it together and make a case. There's two real issues here. Number one, it's attributing the Holy Spirit, and at this particular time, that's how God was working. The Son and the Spirit were working in conjunction, and of course the Father, but they had different roles. Attributing the Holy Spirit to Satan, the most vile and sinful creature uh, around, and that's the epitome of disrespect to God, but there's more. The Holy Spirit has a few functions. Number one, His job in John 16 is to convict the world of sin, to let the world know they are in sin. And when the world is convicted of sin, he also guides us into truth. We know that in John 15, the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. Now, to understand this, because this is one of those difficult concepts that have to be explained properly, um, you know, remember the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. This was an amazing um, overlapping kind of Venn diagram situation where John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament. He made the, the way for the Son, the Messiah, and then the Messiah was going to die on the cross, uh, die, be buried, be resurrected, you know, then ascended to heaven after his 40-day ministry, and then send the Holy Spirit wholesale Uh, to uh, really indwell believers and for them to do amazing feats. So you have to understand, this is a very overlapping time period, okay? But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, of course, work together. And to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to willfully reject the conviction of sin, which leads to repentance, which is what God wants for us, which leads to salvation, which is vigorously promoted by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? We're going to go more into it, too, to help understand it. Now, I would say this, that if you're here and you're worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, there's two good things. Number one, that you're concerned. Number two, as I look around and I look at your feet, I don't see any leg shackles. 
I don't see anybody handcuffed to a pew. I don't see any U.S. Marshals. So I would assume that you're all here of your free will. So that's a good thing. The concern and that you're here of your own free will. Remember, the Pharisees, they should have known better. They were the religious leaders. They knew God's word. They knew the Messiah was coming. They saw the miracles, but they were concerned about losing their power base. So there was a willfulness. I say that word a few times today. Disbelief versus unbelief. Okay, a calculated willfulness versus an ignorant person just not getting it. Just like what I said in the beginning, un versus dis. Now, some may ask, because this really is a mindset and a heart set that's dead set against the working of God. And some may ask, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody reject God's way of salvation? And the answer is really an economics term. It's called opportunity costs. Because the world has many things to offer us, doesn't it? And by giving yourself to the Lord, by surrendering to him, by uh, receiving that conviction of sin, which leads to repentance, and, and giving your life to Christ, it can cost you some things in the world. And many of you have been believers for a while, have experienced those costs. Number one, it would cost you friendships. It can cost you financial opportunities. It can cost you power, depending on what type of position you are in in the world. It may, if you're on unscrupulous practices in, in the world and finances, you may have to become honest now because you're a child of God. So it could cost you your lifestyle. For the Pharisees, it cost them position. So I ask you today, for those of you who are not sure, what is holding you up today from surrendering, surrendering your life to the Lord? And is it worth eternity? Two questions. Meditate on that. Verse 32. Jesus said, this sin will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Again, I don't think it's worth repeating the title of the book because I don't want to give it any airplay than it needs. But there was a new book that came out and basically said that uh, God eventually, after suffering some point in hell, will remove you and uh, you'll be with him in heaven. That's not what Jesus says here. One verse completely knocks that out of the box. Don't even go there. That man is parasiting over people's fears, right? Verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Now, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, like he said, brood of vipers, they had nothing good to say because their hearts were evil. It was all about what was in it for them. And again, this understanding about trees. Basically, if you have a, a fruit tree in your yard, every spring and summer, it's going to produce that fruit that's indigenous to that type of tree. It's in the tree's you know, biological makeup. It's not going to, an apple tree, no matter, you could give it billions of years, it's not going to start producing oranges. It doesn't work. So trees, who we are, will be manifested in our words and our behaviors. And a lot of that you can see um, what comes out of a person, what their behavior is, what type of tree they are. It determines fruit. Remember Peter Parkers who came up here who was addicted to drugs and it caused him to be homeless? That's how bad his addiction was. Here's a guy who hears the gospel. I love this man's testimony. And he says, uh, I knew I was a bad tree. 
I knew I was a tear, but I didn't want to be. I wanted to be a good tree. Now, then the question is, can a leopard change his spots? Not unless the Lord is doing the spot removing. So if you're here today and you're concerned about this, there is still time to repent and, be, and to be brought into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 34, so he calls the religious leaders brood of vipers. Again, do we wonder why it was only a matter of time before they crucified him? These guys were the, um, the erudite, they were the, um, you know, the ones that everyone looked up to, they had the power, and even if you didn't like what they were preaching, they still had power over you in Judaism. Brood of vipers. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. In other words, our words are a reflection of our heart. I mean, if we're constantly talking about stuff that we want, every time we have a conversation, it's about what I want, what I want to do, what I want to get, we could be materialistic. If we're constantly talking about others, we could be a gossip. If we're constantly talking about ourselves, if we can't even have a conversation about the Middle East and interject ourselves into that conversation, I wonder what Gaddafi thinks of me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You're probably self-centered, right? Then I love the, uh, the celebrities when uh, there's a little bit of alcohol added, it becomes a truth serum. How many of these celebrities, a Christian Dior designer, Galliano was the recent one, he caught him drunk at a bar, and he started spouting off about how he loved Hitler and anti-Semitic rantings. And of course, once they sober up, get a PR person and a lawyer, well, it, he didn't really mean that, you know what I'm saying? But a little bit of alcohol and sometimes the check valve from the brain to the lips, it just is eradicated and whatever comes out is really what you're feeling at the time. So there you have it, verse 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let that sink in for a moment. Every idle word. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot of, how many words do we say in a lifetime? You know, gee, uh, we probably don't even remember all the things that we have said. But the word idle, inactive, lazy, useless words. What are we using our words to do? To build up or encourage? Or we use our words to tear down each other, right? Um, you know, some may look at you or, or somebody you know, um, and you may cringe when you see them because you're expecting something negative to come out of their mouth. That's rough. When we start, our face gets associated with a negative word, right? And people don't want to be around us, our words. But it gets, it's deeper than that. Romans 10, our words can justify if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord because we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Why are we justified by those simple words? Because what we're saying is a reflection. It's a mirror of what our heart is, what permeates us, what transcends us. And by our words, we'll be condemned. Well, we certainly have this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this willful disbelief, this denying Jesus before men, and worse, stumbling the little ones on top of it. So it's one thing if we don't believe or we have an attitude towards God, but when we start to propagate this stuff and write books and uh, some of these guys got to be careful from the pulpit and, and we get others who don't know any better to not believe in God or not believe in his righteousness or not believe in his love man get the millstone ready because it's got to go around the neck because you're stumbling the little ones verse 38 then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying teacher we want to see a sign from you but he answered and said to them an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it 
except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment, in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So the religious leaders demanded a sign, and really all they had to do was, number one, look in the Old Testament. Remember even Herod. He heard about the Messiah being born, so he says to the religious guys, the priests and all, hey, go find that in the scripture. And they, oh yeah, here it is, Herod. Okay, let's kill those kids because that Messiah is going to threaten me. Even the worldly Herod knew that the Messiah was coming and he could threaten Herod's position as the king. So no doubt, the religious leaders knew and there was time-sensitive prophecies to point to that period of time. For those who are looking for the Messiah today, mm mm-mm. There are several prophecies that you can find in the Bible that are specifically time-sensitive. That window up of opportunity has come and gone. In, in addition to that, they see Jesus healing these guys, and they say, well, he does that by Beelzebub. So what sign guys are you looking for? What kind of magic trick can I do for you? And Jesus basically wasn't going to do it for them. And to some, you even know that you may witness. They may see the miracles in your life. They may see the changed life. They may see that God's word is true but it's never enough for them. Well, show me something else. And I tell people, God's not going to come down here and pull a rabbit out of a hat. He doesn't do magic tricks. He is the sovereign God, right? Jesus responds, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, evil, it's evil to keep testing God and pushing him and trying to make him like one of us. And adulterous Well, the children of Israel had a problem with that spiritual adultery because they constantly were looking after other gods. And even here, um, Jesus, if you don't provide the sign that we want, we're just going to look for somebody else. So you see this quick fickleness with the love of God versus looking for for it somewhere else, in a sense. There was... uh, I told you the story about the the bicyclist that I ran into, you know, coincidentally, so to speak, Uh, my wife and I and my son and all the events that transpired with this man who was running from his life and biked, you know, 100 miles away from his situation and and how we ran into him and talked to him about the Lord gave him a Bible. He sat right in that pew over there, came to church, you know, we put him up for a night and, uh, you know, a few brothers in the Lord came around him and started talking to him. He goes, yeah, there's just a lot of coincidence today. I wasn't even preaching. And the message that was preached was really all about his life. So, you know, he leaves and, and he's like, you know, I'm just, it's just not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not there. So he, he takes off. Now, you know, we all were like, wow, I wonder why he was in our life for that short period of time. Maybe it'll happen down the road. So he calls me a month or so later and he goes, you told me. That you sent the message from God to me. He goes, I got it. I'm saved. <laughs> now, he actually sounded different. I didn't even recognize him. He had to tell me who he was. Come on, it wasn't that long ago. But the neat thing was, was he was, I think he was struggling with God. He was trying to deny it, putting out of his mind, maybe looking for a sign, and he got hit by a car. <laughs> but he didn't get hurt. It was just enough to knock him off his bike and to him sit there and goes, all right, I get it now. You know what I'm saying? But it took that to, you know, be careful of the signs that you ask for because you might not like the form they come in. <laughs> Sign of Jonah. So we see that Jonah wasn't just a fish tale. It was a true story because Jesus references it. 
I like what Chuck Smith has to say about those who don't believe about the whole fish swallowing Jonah in the three days. He says, if you have a problem with the story, you have a problem with God, because God can do anything. And what I really like to do sometimes from the pulpit is, and and we did go through this with Jonah, is biologically uh, how this could have happened naturally, all right? Uh, talked about the digestive juices in the larger fish, whales, what, what they normally eat, which would not be enough to digest a man. And you see the man come out on the shore, and he's got seaweed wrapped around him, and he's looking real nasty. And he probably really freaked the people out of Nineveh. I mean, that probably was part of the thing there. But um, we, God could have just done a miracle. We don't have to always look at this through natural means. Uh, the second point about this is that his experience, Jonah's experience in the fish, was a picture of Christ's death, burial, and then resurrection. So Jesus says, you want to see a sign? You know, figure it out. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. Now, when we look at this, uh, we really see what we're seeing, a concept understood as the amount of truth or spiritual light that a person receives in their life. Number one, Jonah. What's the subject? Salvation. He preached to who? The men of Nineveh, Nineveh, who Jonah hated. He did not want to go there. And they were not likable people. But they responded and they repented in sackcloth and ashes from the king down all the way to the beast. You know what I'm saying? Everybody had to repent and fast and such. And how do you compare Jesus to Jonah? Jonah finally did what the Lord asked, but you can see that he was really kind of a grumpy prophet. He probably was a grumbly guy, but they still repented upon his preaching about them being overthrown. Solomon, okay, what's the subject? Wisdom. Who is, who's involved? The Queen of the South or Queen Sheba, Second Chronicles 9. Now, we understand the Queen of Sheba or Sheba to be understood as really northeast Africa, maybe a little further south than some of the turmoil that we see going on. And some of those folks in that area still have traditions and stuff that they've recorded, recorded about her visit to Solomon. Stuff is very impressive. What's the, what's the thing? What's the issue? She had an inquiry about the things of God. Compare Solomon to Jesus. No comparison. No comparison. Solomon was a a compromiser at some point, and he was disobedient to the Lord. But, you know, here's the deal. Jesus' generation was going to be held accountable because those people believed with a lot less signs and wonders than what they're asking to do Jesus with Jesus to do here. And I wonder if our generation will also be held accountable. How many advances do we have in uh, biblical archaeology? Pick up one of those books once in a while. It'll blow you away. To the point where archaeologists now use the Bible, some of them won't admit it, as a guide when they go to the Middle East, uncovering these cities, because whatever the Bible says has been true. So we may be held accountable too. Verse 43, now it starts to get a little uh, pretty wild. I mean, I, I like reading this stuff. Verse 43 says, when an unclean spirit or a demon goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this generation. Now understand, there is a an application to the person, but there's also an application to Christ's generation. He gives us some insight here. Warfare 101. Never give any ground that you've gained in battle back to the enemy. 
Now that goes true for spiritual warfare as well. Whatever ground the demonic realm has, has, has grabbed, you know, the Satan through his stranglehold, uh, souls, keeping them in bondage and ignorance, he doesn't want to give that back up. So you see this back and forth with these demonic presences. So the demons technically repossess, uh, to use a word, this person not to give up that ground again. Now, in Matthew 8, remember, we found that demons, what they like to do is inhabit something living. Well, Jesus, if we can't go in the guy, can we go into the pigs? We really don't want to go into the abyss. Now, this kind of backs that up with going through those dry places uh, and looking for a, a final resting place. It's kind of creepy. But understand this. A demon cannot inhabit a child of God. Right? If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you've given your life to Christ, a demon cannot inhabit. Now, I think sometimes with demonology, uh, there's too much said, there's too many books written. The Bible doesn't say all that much about it. We start to now speculate. Um, can we know the difference between um, possession versus oppression? There's some kind of fine line there. Is there uh, some of it is just our flesh? And not demonic oppression because we crave things still in this world that has nothing to do with demons. It's just that part of us that's hard to let go. You know, we can look at some of that. But nevertheless, it's interesting. Now, it does appear that it's worse to dabble with the things of God and get, gain an understanding and reject. That's where the Pharisees were. Then be completely ignorant of the things of God. Okay? And I would say this. Be careful of the cycle. Careful of the cycle. And I know many people. They have some type of sin. They have some type of real dark side to them. And they, they dabble in that world. And then they come and they toy with hearing the things of God. Remember, uh, was it Herod Antipas and John the Baptist? He liked to hear what John had to say. But eventually he kills John and cuts his head off. One of the greatest prophets that ever lived. So it, it is almost like a maddening effect. Um, we know Nero, um, believe it or not. I mean, Paul went before. He would have been the emperor at the time. And they say, history says Nero in the beginning was a really great master builder. He had a good head on his shoulders. And at one point, he went mad, started burning Christians alive and doing crazy things and uh, setting Rome on fire so that he could rebuild some of that, not caring about what happened to the people. Be careful of the cycle. I've met some that said, you know, I'm in church and it feels good to be in church. Yeah, that's right, because God's word is being preached. You're around other believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Sure, it feels good to be in church. And then when I go back home, I, it happens again. Well, there's a good clue. You know, have you surrendered your life to the Lord? Right? Pretty wild stuff here. Now, I'm just going to read a, another quick passage that's parallel to this and then just finish up with the last few verses. Again, this gets hard to read, but we see the good news at the end. This doesn't have to happen to anybody. 2 Peter 2, verse 19 I'll start with verse 18. This uh, contextually has to do with the um, false teachers. False teachers could have come in the form of a religious leader. And I, I don't doubt that um, it could be applicable to others as well. In verse 18, it says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through licentiousness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty... They themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, now that word means experiential in the Greek, not just the surface knowledge, 
of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now to those listening on the internet or getting a CD from a friend or being here today, it puts you in a very interesting position. If you've been dabbling, if you've been going back and forth, you're going to have to make a decision soon about surrendering your life to the Lord because you can't claim ignorance anymore. There was a man, again, in even in New Jersey penal code, California penal code, New York, whatever, there's negligence. You committed that crime negligently. You should have known it was going to happen. It was really dumb, but you really didn't have malice in your heart. Or you committed that crime purposefully or willingly. You're probably looking at an indictable charge now because the law... And God's law, which a lot of the stuff comes from, says that if you plan with, you know, aforementioned malice, you know, all the aforethought malice and all the legal mumbo jumbo, uh, if you plan in your heart to, with malice, hurt somebody, the crime for you is a lot worse than if you did something to someone negligently. Well, it's the same in the scripture. What do you know? How much light have you received? There was a man called, tell me if you could raise your hand, how many of you heard the name Charles Templeton? Not many, because the name, you know, those of you who, yeah, um, you don't hear it much anymore. Here was a guy who was going to be bigger than Billy Graham. He was a contemporary. The man was a pastor. He was a head of ministries. He um, uh, had fruit through his ministries. People got saved. He started, and I, as everything that I read on the guy, he started dabbling with the world. He started fooling around, messing around, Um, spiritually with uh, liberal theologians. He started questioning certain parts of the scripture that when I I read his questions, I'm like, that's easy to answer. He was dabbling in things he shouldn't have. Eventually, he renounced God and wrote a book, Farewell to God. I don't know where he is right now, but I mean, I'm open to the possibility that he repented on his deathbed, but um, it doesn't look good. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Here's a guy who willingly, the world, you can't, nobody can, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out in my hand. You can't lose your salvation. However, we have free will. We can make choices. Why you would make that choice, I have no idea. But now, again, just for those who are kind of feeling a little uncomfortable, this is not the backsliding Christian. This is not the, um, the Christian who really blows it, you know, one of the bigger sins, and really heartfully repents to God, I'm so sorry, I won't do it again. You know, listen, your pastor every day has to, during the day, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. So uh, we sin. That's the world we live in. But this is a conscious, willful disbelief, putting it aside because there's something in the world that you like so much better and you go back into the world, you immerse yourself, you willfully become overcome by the world. Understand that. Nobody can take it from you. It's not going to happen by accident. And, And I've said this before, when it comes to even adulterous situations, nobody wakes up the next morning next to someone who's not their spouse and say, how did I get here? No. Starts with a conversation can move to a phone number, it, it could be a lunch date. You know, there are some steps to get to that spot. Some of them are more accelerated than the other, but the bottom line is it's a willful decision to do that to your spouse, and it's evil, okay? It's a willful decision to do that to the Lord. I don't want to mention his name again, but there's an actor who claimed to be born again, and he, I was, I'm very interested in his life. He 
um, said recently, I feel like I'm losing my mind. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. I wish he'd come over here and fly out here. I'd tell him about the love of God because all those producers don't, don't care a lick about him. They're just using him for the money, for his talent. They don't care about what happens to him at the end. But the thing is, you, you know, you to be a child of God, to, to be with the Lord and then keep going back into these worlds, you're, you're going to go crazy. I've heard this from several brothers who said, I feel like I'm losing my mind. And that's what's going to happen. Where does this leave a church that rejects the cross, the concept of sin, blood, hell, salvation, repentance, whitewashed tomb? It's mere window dressing. Now, I would just say this as we come to a close here. Surrender. Last Sunday, I believe I, I kind of was saying some of that in the altar call. Surrender your will to the Lord. Yes, it's hard. Yeah, it was hard for me. <laughs> I'm not making it sound easy. But once I took that step and came to the other side, I'm like, why didn't I do this sooner? Surrender. Some of you are struggling. Some of you are fighting. Some of you are, are, are tormenting yourself. And all you need to do is give your life up to the Lord. 46, the good news. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. How, what an honor, you know? Wow. I mean, if I was there, it would have given me chills. It gives me chills reading it. John 1.12 tells us that we can be adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 5 says that we can be loved by God as a, a groom loves his bride. This wasn't a dig on his family, but he was basically saying that the spirit, not blood, is thicker than water in a sense. Now let's just go through this real quick. Uh, unbelief. I think we understand we made a case for unbelief. I don't know. I start to read the Bible. I start to see ha things happen in other people's lives. Unbelief starts to give way to either belief or disbelief. Now, this, just, let me just squeeze something in here. Hebrews 11.6. It says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there's some issues with faith and belief. And there's some that, again, even Christians get tr in trouble with this. They struggle. It's not near disbelief, trust me. This is just... Sometimes we as believers, our circumstances become so overwhelming that we start to falter a little bit. But, you know, there's always repentance and there's always us, you know, coming to ourselves and saying, you know, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I get it now. It makes sense. Here's where we cross the line, the real problem, the sin of disbelief, the conscious, willful effort to push God away, to see the workings of the Holy Spirit, to stumble the little ones over that because we're rejecting God. Where are you today? God wants to encourage us. He loves us. He wants to be with us. He adores us. He adores you. Usually the problem is on our end with our wills. You know, stop running. Stop struggling. Stop fighting. Sounds like I'm arresting somebody, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but it's true. I mean, we make more of a problem for ourselves than we need to. You know, just to... Just run on that wheel and do it our own way, and the wheel keeps spinning, and 
we get off the wheel and we're still in the same spot. Surrender your will to God. And don't deny and don't push away and don't resist against what the Holy Spirit is showing you and doing in your life. Let's pray.